Mike allowed me to just briefly share about my books. So I don't have to explain them a bunch of times at the, at the uh, conference table or the book table. So you received a copy of Your Marriage God's Way. And so probably doesn't need any explanation. I do have some extra copies if you wanted to buy copies for you know, kids or friends or as gifts or something like that. I think there's more, might be more copies in the back. And then my book, Your Finances, God's Way, and there's an accompanying workbook. What I'd say about it is it's pretty conservative. All my books came from sermons that I preached, so I think they're thoroughly biblical. And I don't have the bandwidth to write separately for my preaching ministry. So if it's in a book, it's something that I preached on at my church. And so this has a high, really high view of stewardship, um, generosity, saving, paying off debt. Then uh, a father offers his sons. I came to Christ and I really came to love Christ as I was seeing him throughout the Old Testament through types and shadows. I was raised in the Catholic Church. I wasn't a Christian, didn't know the Bible, and read, started reading through the Bible. And Christ was coming alive to me through many of the types and shadows that I saw. And it was kind of a dream of mine to publish a book about Abraham sacrificing Isaac and how much that looked forward to God sacrificing his son 2,000 years later. And so if you don't see Christ through Genesis 22, then you basically just see an account of God telling a father to murder his son. But as soon as you see Christ through it, it just takes on this beauty that is really moving to me. And so we know God didn't want Abraham to sacrifice Isaac because the angel stopped him. So it begs the question, well, what did God want then? He wanted to reveal 2,000 years earlier what he did plan to do. He wasn't going to stop. He was going to sacrifice his son for our sins. And so this book just examines the typology there between Abraham and Isaac and God the Father and God the Son. And then a book I just wrote on trials and suffering and finding joy in them and then the ways God uses trials to mature us. And then a book, Work and Rest God's Way. And I think uh, there's an, I sold out of this, so I'm going to put one out there as a display copy. But if you're interested in this, then I'm happy to mail, mail a copy to you. And there's an accompanying family guide. So you can tell that I like to have workbooks with my books. But for work and rest, because I really think it's important to get our children to work, I, I've heard that this church has many homeschooling families, and so the nice thing is we can have our kids working. In fact, it really frustrates me that they have laws that stop children from working. I've never really understood that, and we should. You, you'd almost think they think it's a good thing for kids to be working. But so anyway, I wanted families to be able to do a, kind of a workbook or guide for the work and rest God's way together, and so there's an accompanying family guide for that. And then my wife's devotionals. I just texted her and told her I need to bring more of her devotionals next time because I sold out of those. But if you want any of her devotionals, uh, someone else just purchased, purchased some, I'll, I'll go ahead and mail those to you. Just give me your address. You can pay for them here, and then I'll, I'll mail those books to you early next week. And, and then the last thing, and I mean this sincerely, I did not write books to make money, and I would pretty much discourage anyone from writing books to make money because there's not a lot of, of money in it. But I wrote books because I wanted more people to be equipped with God's word, and I hope that God might get more mileage out of the sermons that I was laboring over. And so it's a blessing for me, for any of you to read, to read my books. And so if you, you've already taken time out of your life to come here and listen to someone, someone you probably didn't, didn't know, at, maybe at all, and that blesses me. And so if money's at all tight or anything, I would appreciate it if you just came and took a book or took as many books as you want. Can you guess the one request I have if you take a book, though? What's the one request? Yeah, that you read it. That's it. <laughs> or if you're giving it as a gift, that you give it to someone that reads it. But I don't want to take all these books back with me on the plane, and it would be a blessing for me just to know they're in your hands and that God is using them to equip you to serve him. So, Father, thank you for this time as we continue the conference. As we look now at such an important marriage verse, I don't think it comes to mind as much as, as Ephesians um, 5 does, that passage there. But 
First uh, Peter 3, 7, and how husbands should uh, treat their wives, uh, give us all receptiveness as husbands. We address the wives in the last message. And as we come back to one of our um, strongest, stronger messages for husbands, Lord, uh, help all of us to grow in this area and apply this, this verse that's just so packed with information for us and to learn from the examples in the Old Testament that we discuss as well. Lord, thank you for this time, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you want to open your Bibles to 1 Peter 3, 7, that's where we'll be. I'm going to start with a lesson here. We're on our fourth message, how husbands should treat their wives. I'm going to pause our discussion of marriage just for a moment for an important lesson. So if you open your hand out to lesson four or session four, remember listening is not enough is lesson one. Remember listening is not enough. So there's been a lot of teaching up to this point, and it's important to keep this in mind, this lesson, or else none of this teaching is going to benefit us. So I'm going to share something with you that I noticed when I was teaching and I was coaching. So I'd be teaching elementary school, and like you'd expect, I'd stand up at the whiteboard and go over different problems or things that I wanted the students to learn, teach it, provide some examples, and then provide some problems that I wanted the students to work through. And then I'd walk through the classroom, kind of weaving my way through the desks, looking over the students' shoulders to observe their work. And I recognized pretty quickly that all the students fell into one of two categories. There were students who did what they were taught. They were applying the teaching that they had just received at the whiteboard. And then there were students who did not do what they were taught. They received the same instruction as the other students, but they would not apply it. When I'd coach wrestling, I'd begin each practice generally teaching a few new moves. All, this, all the athletes are kind of sitting against the wall, and I'm in the middle of the mat. I teach these moves, and then I put them in pairs, and then I tell them to go out on the mat and practice all these new moves themselves. And again, you'd have two categories of athletes. You'd have athletes who would do what they, were, what they just watched and what they were told to do, and then you'd have athletes who watched the same moves but would not do it themselves. Well, you can probably guess which of these categories of students and athletes ended up being successful. The reason I mention this is all of us are going to be one of these two categories regarding the teaching and instruction that we're receiving here at this conference. We're going to listen and we're going to apply it, or we're going to listen and simply think that listening, our part ends at listening. So it is great to listen to God's word, but we must go further and apply it to our lives. And this is one of the reasons that I would encourage you to go home and then go through the, the handout together. And if you miss any <laughs> blanks, you can, I think my email address is in that handout. You can email me and I'll be happy to give you, give you any of the blanks or help you with anything. Jesus taught an entire parable that was meant to make this single point that the parable of the, and that's the parable of the builders in Matthew 7, 24 to 27. That parable is ultimately about two categories of people people who hear God's word and don't apply it, and then people who hear God's word and do apply it, or we could say build our lives and marriages on it. Matthew 7, 24, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, I'll liken him to a man who built his house on the rock. The rain descended, floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house. And when it talks about the winds coming and the floods and beating on that house, I think that describes the trials and struggles that every marriage experiences. So at our church, we celebrate anniversaries, and we, especially those when people reach like 30, 40, 50 years. When people reach 30, 40, 50 years of marriage, is that because they never had any struggles or the storms never beat on their house? No, absolutely not. Everyone who stays married deals with 
with struggles, but it's those couples that are building their marriages on Christ's word that are going to stand up against those struggles. It says, the house did not fall for it was founded on the rock. And then Jesus says, everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, beat on that house. Again, the same struggles, but it says the house fall, fell and great was its fall. So the main point, two groups of people heard the exact same teaching, one applied it, one didn't. So the main point is that Jesus's, or the, Jesus's main point is listening is not enough. It's a common biblical theme that we can't just hear God's word for the sake of hearing it. We must apply it. Luke 8, 21, Jesus said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and take really good notes. Now, that's not what he said. As, as important as taking good notes is, he says, and do it. John 13, 17, if you know these things, blessed are you, you know, if you listen to lots of sermons, but don't put them into practice. No, that's not what he said. He said, blessed you if you do them. James 1, 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. And I think that phrase, deceiving yourselves, is key to this because the deception is we think that listening is enough. We deceive ourselves into believing that reading the book, coming to the marriage conference, sitting through the worship service, listening to the sermon is enough without applying it. And so Jesus says we can, or James says we can deceive ourselves. We must not be hearers only, we must be doers. So in 1 Peter 3, if you want to go ahead and turn there, the last message, message discussed submission and looked largely at those first six verses. And now we're going to look at verse 7, which serves as a warning to husbands to prevent us from abusing the authority God has given us. So if you look at the structure, it's pretty, pretty wonderful the way this flows. You have verses 1 through 6, where Peter talks about wives submitting to their husbands And right after that, he has this incredibly strong verse to husbands discouraging us from abusing the authority that God has given us in the marriage relationship. So we know Christianity is criticized for commanding wives to submit to their husbands, but it's important to keep in mind, and I like to say this probably at some point in every conference, that Christianity has always done more for wives than anything else. And here's what I mean. If you look at those places in the world where women experience the worst mistreatment, it is always those places that are the furthest from the gospel. Kind of think of the Middle East or strong Muslim countries, right? Well, any time that the gospel is introduced into an area of the world where women are mistreated, they're suddenly elevated to the level of care and concern that God commands And these women then are cherished and adored. They then experience the treatment that they've never experienced before. And so my point is, when people look at the world... So first, my point is, when people are criticizing submission, they're really showing their ignorance because Christianity does more than anything else to exalt women to a level of care and condition that they don't experience otherwise. But the other reason that I'm mentioning this is that when we look in places of the world where women are mistreated, the solution is not psychology. The solution is not secular teaching on marriage. The solution is for the gospel of Jesus Christ to be preached, for these men to have their hearts changed, to be convicted about their mistreatment of these women, and then, to, then the response will be better treatment for the women. So there's so much in verse 7, we're going to look at it piece by piece. First, look at the words, husbands, 
Likewise, dwell with them with understanding. And this brings us to lesson two, part one. Husbands treat their wives well by learning them. Husbands treat their wives well by learning them. I want to provide a brief lesson on Greek so we can appreciate what Peter is saying here. In Greek, there's two words for know or knowing. Epistemi, it's an intellectual knowledge, a knowledge that comes by observing, but it lacks personal relationship or experience. Gnosko is a level of knowledge that comes from personal relationship or experience. So here's two examples. And so what we do is we add the word of in English to distinguish between knowing and knowing of something. So for example, I talk about wrestling. I know wrestling gnosko. I know of rugby. I, have, I know wrestling because I've experienced it. That's gnosko knowledge. But rugby is something I've never participated in. So I know of it. That's epistemi, but I don't know it personally or relationally. My wife, or let's say Abraham Lincoln. I know of Abraham Lincoln, but I don't know him personally. That's epistemi. But I know my wife intimately through personal relationship and experience with her. So that's gnosko. Well, the reason that I mention this is that word, that Greek word for understanding, in verse 7, it's gnosis, which is related to the word gnosko. So Peter is commanding husbands to develop an intimate knowledge of our wives that comes through personal relationship and experiences with them. So brothers, we need to know our wives. We need to learn them. We need to understand them. We want to know more about our wives than almost anything. A husband should know as much as he can about the woman that he's going to be spending his life with. One commentator said, get your doctorate on the subject of your wife. A good husband ought to know as much as there is to know about her. So what is it that we should learn or understand about our wives? We should learn what they like and what they don't like, how they feel loved, what's important to them, what they desire and despise, what they enjoy and what they don't enjoy. And then let me just ask the ladies this. Ladies, do you want to be known? Do you want your husband to know you and understand you? Do you want your husband interested in you? This is how wives typically feel loved. But unfortunately, there are lots of wives who wish their husbands knew as much about them as they know about plenty of other things. There are plenty of wives who wish their husbands were as interested in them as those husbands, as their husbands are in sports or cars or television or friends or food or music or video games or you, you name it. And I'm not saying for a moment that men can't have other interests or be knowledgeable of other things, but I am saying that what husbands should know the most about is their wives. Now, because we live in a fallen, sinful world, we should fully expect the culture to contradict the Bible. If God, so here's what I mean. If God commands husbands to understand their wives, what is the world going to say about women? Come on, someone, someone, huh? They are incomprehensible. You cannot understand women. It is impossible to learn them. And this is something that we frequently see in the movies or basically any media that's put out, women are shown to be complicated, confusing. There's no reason even bothering to try to understand women. As husbands, we must realize that whenever we go along with that worldly agenda, we're going along with an agenda that contradicts God's word. I think I was in a church one time and I listened to a pastor make a joke about not being able to understand uh, women, but he wasn't making the joke like, this is what the world says. He was making the joke like, this is what I think. And the moment he did that, I thought, you have just introduced Satan's agenda into the church and made it seem like husbands cannot obey what God's word says here. Notice the word dwell. 
or some translations say live. This refers to physically being together, but it means more than just occupying the same house or having a business relationship with your spouse, which is sadly what some marriages look like. The word dwell or live, it refers to doing life together, making your wife your companion in, in as many parts of life as possible. So if we tie these words together, husbands dwelling or living with our wives in an understanding way, it is commanding husbands to develop a knowledge or understanding of our wives and then to live with them or dwell with them according to that understanding or knowledge that we have of them. So we take the understanding we have of our wives and we apply it to our daily lives with them. To put it simply, a husband should understand what makes his wife feel loved and then strive to love her that way. A husband should know how his wife wants to be treated and then strive to treat her that way. So dwelling with our wives in an understanding way, it also means dealing tenderly with them. This is especially applicable regarding our wives' weaknesses. My wife, Katie, she gave me permission to share some of the ways that she appreciates me striving to dwell with her in an understanding way. So first, Katie's a very visionary uh, woman in that she has lots of plans, ideas, thoughts. She likes to think months, years, or sometimes even decades out and then share all of, her, all of her ideas with me. Now, for me, I generally think about one week ahead. I'm thinking about the next week's sermon, and that's it. So my life kind of goes on the seven-day calendar, and then I've got a wife who's always trying to talk to me about months, years, decades ahead. Well, because Katie has so many visions and thoughts, she has trouble, and maybe some of you could almost anticipate this, finishing things she starts. Does that make sense? So she's, she loves to start things, but she has trouble finishing those. And so Ecclesiastes 7.8, it says the end of a thing is better than its beginning. Well, what that means is it's better to finish things than start. So Katie says that that's made, that has become like her lifers. So all that to say, there's two ways that she has shared that she appreciates me dwelling with her in an understanding way. When she has an idea, so I used to be insensitive, and she would want to share a thought or idea with me, and I would, because I didn't, I didn't, didn't want to waste time, or I, I thought there's no real potential for this to happen, I, wasn't, I wouldn't listen very attentively. I would not be very interested in her ideas. And so she told me one time, she said, you know, even if you don't think that this is going to happen, and it, and it probably won't, it still really means a lot to me if you would just be interested in my ideas and let me share them with you. And so since then, I've really tried to make a point to listen to what she wants to share with me, her thoughts and ideas and visions, even if I don't expect them to happen. And this, then the second thing she asked me to do to help her in a gentle way is she said, please try to make sure that I finish something before I start something else. And so those are just two simple practical ways that Katie's asked me to dwell with her in an understanding way. Third, Katie has anxiety when our kids are out late. I did, did not anticipate this, and I don't know if other wives are like this. I don't notice it as much with other women because I see that other women or other mothers don't seem to mind. Like if we go to camp as a church, I see other families that let their kids stay up really late, well, whereas Katie really wants to get our kids in bed at a certain time. And so it's, it's very important to her to be home, have our kids in bed, know that they're clean, know their teeth are brushed, know that they're, they're, they're in their own beds. And so the problem is there's this collision because I go to church events and I try to be available and there's almost always people talking to me. And so whenever Katie wanted to leave to go home, guess what I would frequently say? Well, I'm in the middle of this intense conversation. And so Katie said that my life motto should be, I'm in the middle of an intense conversation, right? Because people are always coming and talking to me about all, they, they're generally important things. I mean, 
They're talking to me about their children, their marriages, their families, spiritual questions. So there's always an important, an important topic. And I would be getting Katie home really late at night. She'd be really stressed about our children. And she's developing this almost animosity toward me because I was showing more sensitivity to people in the church than I was showing to her. So when we would go out, Katie said, it'll really mean a lot to me if you will tell, if we can decide on a time that we will leave. So whenever we go someplace, I tell her, okay, we can leave. Is it okay if we leave at this time? Can we leave at nine or 9.30 or 8.30, depending on how, or even 10, maybe if it's close to our house or something. And then Katie really appreciates me leaving at that time. But you can imagine, what the, I don't want to sound um, like I'm being dramatic, but you can almost imagine some of the sacrifice involved in that because when it turns to nine o'clock, if I'm in the middle of a conversation with someone, what do I have to say? You know, this is really important and I'm really sorry to have to say this, but my wife wants me to get her and the kids home right now, so we're going to have to finish this at another time. And then, Katie, and then Katie sees me elevating her in importance over those people that I'm in, in a conversation with, which is, which is the way that it should be as a pastor. Your wife and your children must be more important even than the people that you're ministering to. So that's just another way practical example of trying to dwell with my wife in an understanding way. Each wife's different. The point isn't that husbands need to do those same things I'm doing. The point is that you need to understand your wife and see what she, how she wants you to dwell with her, how, what you can learn from her and then apply that, learn that knowledge to your relationship. Next, notice the words giving honor to the wife. The next part of lesson two, husbands treat their wives well by part two, honoring them. Husbands treat their wives well by part two, honoring them. The Greek word for honor, it means a valuing by which the price is fixed. Eight times this word for honor is translated as price because it refers to the value of something. For example, Matthew 27, 6, you know, Judas brings the money to the priests, says the chief priest took the silver pieces, said it's not lawful to put them in the treasury because they're the price of blood. That's the same Greek word for honor. In 1 Peter 3, 7, Acts 5, 3, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price or value, that's the same word for honor, of the land for yourself? So when it tells husbands to recognize the value of our wives and honor them because of that value, you say, well, why would a word about honor be the same word as value or price? Because it's encouraging husbands to recognize the value or you could even say price, of our wives and then honor them as a result of that. Now here's where it gets interesting. The Greek word for wife, which occurs 221 times in the New Testament, it's gene, like related to the word gynecologist, a female doctor. If you look in verse 1, it says wives, that's gene. But if you look in verse 5, it says in this manner in holy times, the holy women, again, that's gene. But in verse 7, the words to the wife, it's one word in Greek, gynekaios, and this is the only place it occurs. And instead of being a noun, instead of being the word wife or woman, it's an adjective or describing word, meaning of or belonging to a woman, feminine or female. It's describing things related to females or femininity. Okay, now you're patient while I kind of try to explain something that might have sounded a little confusing. But here's the point. Husbands are commanded to honor our wives but not just for the sake of honoring them. We're commanded to honor our wives for their femininity, because of their femininity. It's commanding husbands to find value in our wives because of their femininity. It is the wife's feminine nature that should prompt a husband to honor her. 
It is the wife's feminine nature where the husband finds his wife's value. So if we allow scripture to define femininity for us, we can develop a good understanding from Titus 2. These verses reveal what God expects of feminine women, whether they're younger or older. And it says, Older women should admonish the young women to love their husbands, love their children, be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Now, a wife who lives out these verses is going to be manifesting biblical femininity, and that should prompt her husband to see her value and then honor her as a result. Now, here's something that's sad and ironic. The feminist movement moves women away from being feminine and encourages them to be more masculine. But in the process, when a woman moves away from femininity to masculinity, she loses some of her value. So the feminist movement encourages women to move away from what God says they should be honored for, encourages them to have less value. The feminist movement says, be like this where you will have less value and, and receive less honor from your husband. So the words giving honor to the wife, it has encouragement for husbands and wives. So as husbands, and I would say fathers, we should praise our wives for their femininity or their, their female nature. We should raise our daughters to be feminine. We should praise our daughters when they're feminine. We should encourage our wives and our daughters to celebrate their femininity. And then some of the application for wives, whether you're young or old, mothers or daughters, celebrate being women. Celebrate your femininity. Celebrate the beauty that, that God has given you. Next, notice the words, as to the weaker vessel. And this brings us to lesson two, part three. As to the weaker vessel. And then lesson two, part three. Husbands treat their wives well by part three, recognizing they're the weaker vessel. This is speaking of women being weaker physically. It is not speaking of women being weaker mentally, emotionally, or spiritually. As we kind of talked about yesterday, it seems like frequently women might be stronger spiritually. So it's speaking physically. Studies have shown that women are approximately 40 to 50% weaker than men in the upper body and 30 to 40% weaker in the lower body. But interestingly, notice it says weaker versus just saying weak. So by saying weaker, what is that also implying? That men are weak. That's exactly right. And we recognize that. We get sick. We get hurt. We get older and we end up dying. We suffer injuries. So why did God, so that's a reminder to us as men that we're weak, so we should show greater sensitivity to our, to our wives' weakness because we're also weak. But the question is, why did God make men physically stronger? Well, he did this so that men can protect women. Not only should husbands protect their wives and daughters, we should teach our sons to protect their mothers, sisters, and other women in our home. <clears throat> it's interesting as some of our kids have gotten older, there's things that are kind of acceptable when our kids are younger that stop being acceptable when they get older. So if you think really young, you're going to have your, your boys wrestling or playing in a kind of physical way with their little sisters when they're like two to four or something like that. But then your boys get older, and now you're telling them, no, you can't put your hands on your sisters. There's no more wrestling. You're opening doors. You're pulling out chairs for them. In fact, in our home, there's a few things, not that we have it all figured out, but that we we really severely punish. One of them is lying. If we ever catch our children in lies, that's something that we're... Because you don't always get a lot of opportunities to actually catch a child lying. You suspect a child is lying, 
But when God allows you to actually catch a child, you point out to that child and you say, God loves you enough that he's allowed you to get caught in this lie and he definitely wants us as your parents to punish you for this so you learn from it. But then one of the other things that we really punish is if any of our boys ever physically hurt one of their sisters, even at a pretty young age, like my son Noah, who's actually a pretty, pretty sweet-natured son, but he has hurt his, his, if he hurts his sister Chloe, for example, then we're going to pull Noah aside you know, and we're going to spank him and, you know, put your hands up here on the counter. We need to spank you. You need to understand just how seriously God takes you using the greater strength that he's given you, even at six years old, to protect your sister, not to ever put your hands on her and and harm her. And so that's always something we're going to punish pretty seriously because we want our boys to know at the youngest age that God has given them greater strength so that they can protect their, their sisters. So treating our wives as a weaker vessel, it means making them feel safe, making them feel protected. Wives should never feel afraid of verbal, emotional, or even worse, physical abuse. It's not the wife's responsibility to deal with conflict or danger. Every husband, the very best he can, is always going to put himself between his wife and anything that might threaten her. In our church, we generally try not to. We don't really think it's appropriate for men to rebuke women we would rather if a, if that woman is married we'll want to talk to her husband and let him shepherd his wife if the if the young woman is single and she uh, perhaps still lives in the home we're going to go talk to her father and then allow him because that's just one way we don't think it's really appropriate for a woman to feel like you know a group of elders are almost ganging up on her confronting her so we're going to talk to her if a woman did something did something wrong and and because women sin too or if there was any a church discipline issue, there was something like that some years ago where one woman had, um, I think one woman had married an unbeliever. There was one woman that had gotten pregnant. And in those situations, we tried to deal with the, the husband or man in, in their lives. So the tragedy that takes place is sometimes men use their strength to abuse or intimidate women. And when they do this, they're doubly sinning because they're, sinning the, they're committing the sin of commission and omission. We can, like James says, you can, it's a sin if you do the sin you know you ought not to do, and it's also a sin if you don't do the thing that God does want you to do. So one's the sin of commission, one's the sin of omission. Well, if a man ever uses his strength to intimidate or abuse a woman, he's committing the sin of commission because he's using his strength the wrong way, and he's committing the sin of omission because he's failing to use his strength the way that God does want him to use it in terms of protecting a a woman. Now, if you need a strong encouragement regarding how seriously God expects husbands to treat their wives, look at the last words, that your prayers may not be hindered. And this brings us to lesson two, part four. Husbands treat their wives well by part four being spiritual men. Husbands treat their wives well by being part four spiritual men. And I'll give you an example that illustrates this. Whenever, whatever position you're in, in the military, there's always someone who's in charge of you. And so as a result, it seems to me that everyone in the military has the same fear that they're going to find themselves at some point with a commander over them who doesn't have their act together. Most people who are in the military, if they have you know, like their top few wishes, maybe second only to living at a certain place, is going to be having a commander over them that knows what he's doing and is going to make good decisions. Well, the reason that I mention this is this summarizes the fear that some women have. Does my husband have his act together? Is he a spiritual man I can trust to lead our family well? Is God going to hear his prayers? And so husbands, we can alleviate our wife's fear by being men who regularly pray, by regularly read the word, by regularly being in fellowship. And so right here 
It's as though God says, I take so seriously the treatment of your wife that if you don't treat her well, I'm not going to hear your prayers. They're going to be hindered. So if we connect the dots to the verses earlier, verses 1 through 6 are about wives submitting to their husbands. And then one of the best ways for husbands to make a wife's submission easier is by being a spiritual man. Let me say it one more time. So verses 1 through 6, God commands husbands or wives to submit to their husbands. And then in verse 7, it identifies how husbands can make a wife's submission easier by being spiritual men. That Greek word for hindered, it means cut down. The Amplified says, in order that your prayers may not be hindered and cut down. That word for hindered is used throughout the New Testament for cutting down a fruit tree. Matthew seven nineteen, every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down. That's the word for hindered. Luke thirteen seven, he said to the keeper of the vineyard, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit. I can't find any. Cut it down. Again, that's the word for hindered. So why would God use a word about a fruit tree being cut down to describe a husband's prayers being cut down? Well, the reason is it's picturing a husband's prayers being cut down or being fruitless. A husband offers up his prayers and God doesn't want to hear them. And so as a spiritual leader, there should be few things that a man would desire more than God hearing his prayers. But in verse 7, God says it's so important for husbands to treat their wives well that he won't even hear the prayers of a man who's disobedient in this area. Or as one commentator put it, the only prayer that God will hear from husbands when we mistreat our wives is a prayer of repentance. I'm truly sorry for the way that I have mistreated my wife. And I'm ashamed to say there have been a few mornings over the years where I left my house not on good terms with Katie, on my way to the office, and, and it, feeling convicted because I'm going to go there and I'm going to pray, I'm going to open God's word, I'm going to put a sermon together, I'm going to try to answer spiritual questions with spiritual answers, and I'm going to need God to hear my prayers, but I know that he's not going to because I'm not on good terms with Katie, and I've had to head back to my house and go in and make things right. And there's at least one time, or maybe more, where I didn't do that. I got to my office and I had a message from Katie where she said something along the lines of, you're not going to have a very good day studying today because you left the house on bad terms with me and you probably need to get back here and make things right with me because God isn't going to be helping you in your ministry until you, until you come fix things with me. And she's, she was right about that. And then I have to go back and make things right with her. So now we've reached another one of those times I want to go to the Old Testament to look at examples of what we're discussing. So why don't you go ahead and turn to Genesis 3, or Genesis 30, excuse me. Turn to Genesis 30. Okay, so here's the situation while you turn there. Jacob has two wives. That's obviously part of the problem. Having two wives would be inconsiderate and sinful. That's how you don't dwell with your wife or your wives in an understanding way, by having two of them. Sometimes people wonder why it looked like men could have multiple wives in the Old Testament. If you'd never heard this before, it would be good for you to at least hear this one time and then apply it to all of your time reading God's Word, that there's a major difference between something being descriptive and prescriptive. And there's an incredible danger associated with taking something that's descriptive and making it prescriptive. And what I mean by that is the Bible frequently describes something without prescribing it to us. Does that make sense? So something can be recorded, and because the Bible is an accurate historical document, it's going to record the sins of people. But it does not mean that because those people committed those sins or because those sins are described, that those behaviors are then prescribed or prescriptive for us. 
And can you see why it's very problematic when you take something that's described and then you make it prescriptive? And, I, and I, I've seen people do this frequently, like in the book of Judges with Deborah, where the book of Judges is almost like a, descript, a descriptive book where you almost don't want to take any of it and make it prescriptive because it's pretty much the spiritually darkest time in Israel's history where every man did what was right in his own eyes. Well, this is the same here with polygamous relationships in the Old Testament. You have men that were taking multiple wives. It was not it was descriptive, but it was not prescriptive, despite what the Mormons might say. If you ever talk to them about polygamy, they're going to point to these descriptive accounts and make them prescriptive. And if you've ever wondered, well, you know, Pastor Scott, then how am I supposed to know when something is descriptive versus prescriptive? That's a very legitimate question because sometimes it's not always clear. Well, in Luke 7, 35, Jesus said that wisdom is justified by her children. And what he meant by that was the wisdom of decisions is, the word justified means declared right. We're justified by faith. We're declared righteous by faith. So when Jesus says wisdom's justified by her children, he means the wisdom of decisions is justified or declared right by what's produced the children of those decisions. So you can frequently look at decisions, see what's produced by them to have the wisdom of that decision justified or sometimes the, the decision is shown actually to be foolish instead. And so let's apply this to polygamous relationships. In the ancient world, what was the children, not, I mean, figuratively speaking, what was produced from the decision for a man to have multiple wives? Well, or let me say it like this. Every single polygamous relationship in the Old Testament was characterized by what? Huh? Go ahead, you can say it aloud. What is What? Huh? Jealousy chaos, conflict, turmoil. The absence of love, peace, joy, all the things that should characterize a relationship. And so you could say the wisdom, and I'm using that word loosely, of polygamous relationships is actually shown to be foolish. And we're going to see one of those relationships here. So Genesis 30 begins right after Leah has given birth to four sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Rachel has not been able to have any children. And in the Old Testament, and it can be the same today. Few things are worse for a woman than being unable to have children. So how do you think that Rachel was feeling, considering that her sister, Leah, who also happens to be her husband's other wife, has just had four sons when she has not had any? She's pretty upset about this. Look in verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister, envied Leah, and said to Jacob, give me children or else I die. Now, one of the reasons that I like this example is that it has application for husbands and wives. Sometimes wives can be too emotional, and this is a good example. Rachel's being melodramatic. Yes, it was difficult for her to be unable to have children, but should she have been talking about dying as a result of that? No, definitely not. Second, who did Rachel hold responsible for her suffering? She held Jacob responsible for her suffering. Was it really Jacob's fault that she couldn't have children? No, it wasn't because Jacob had been able to have children with Rachel's sister Leah or with Jacob's other wife. And so it was something that she shouldn't have been blaming Jacob for and that she should have been taking to the Lord. So here's the application for wives. Do you hold your husband responsible when you're suffering? If you're upset with him, if you're upset about something in your life, are you going to take it out? 
on your husband or your family. If you're having a bad day, are you going to make sure your husband's having a bad day too? As wonderful as my wife is, she had the humility to tell me the other day, and I was able to share this in a sermon, so I know that I can share here with you. She said, if I'm walking around the house and I stub my toe, I'm looking to see what kids are not working. Does that make sense? <laughs> she just means I'm hurt now, I'm upset, and I'm looking for someone to take my, hot, my frustration out on. So if I see a kid that's not working, they're going to be the object of my, of my, I don't want to say wrath, that's too strong of a word. But I, I did appreciate my way of saying that, and I think there is that potential for wives to be like Rachel. I'm hurting, I'm going to take it out on my husband, or I'm going to take it out on my children, or I'm going to take it out on those people who are around to me. Plus, much of Rachel's anger stemmed from her sister Leah having children. It says she envied her sister. So her anger was not motivated by something her husband did. It was motivated by jealousy, which is a sin or covetousness. So ladies, are you jealous or are you covetous of what other women have? It's interesting, the 10th commandment, which is the commandment that deals with covetousness, there's no mention of money there. It's all about, and I'm not saying we can't covet someone else's money, but I'm saying that that wasn't even part of the list because God is focusing on us coveting the other things that people have. We, so ladies, might you ever covet another woman's home, her life, her children, her husband? And if so, do you end up taking that out on your husband? Is it planting a root of bitterness in your heart toward your husband like it did in Rachel toward Jacob? Now, with all that said, was it understandable for Rachel to be upset. It was. She can't have children. That's a hard thing for a wife to have to deal with. So Jacob has the opportunity at this moment to be a loving, sensitive, compassionate husband who dwells with his wife in an understanding way. And so he could have asked himself, how can I dwell with my wife with understanding? She's a female. Much of her femininity is a desire to have children, so it's responsible for her to be upset. How can I give honor to her, recognizing she's the weaker vessel? You know, I know what I'll say to her. I'll say, I'm sorry you haven't been able to have children. This has been really difficult. Why don't we pray about this? Let's ask that the Lord will open your womb. Those were all things he could have said. Look what he said instead in verse 2. Jacob's anger was aroused against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Notice his anger was aroused, and this brings us to lesson 3, part 1. Husbands mistreat their wives by responding in anger. Husbands mistreat their wives by responding in anger. So think about something for a moment. Wives are different emotionally. They're more sensitive typically, which is a wonderful thing. In fact, sometimes I've noticed that sometimes one of the things that as husbands we get upset about with our wives is, is actually the thing that separates them from being like men. So it's a really good, so we'll, and what I mean by that is we might, as husbands, get upset that our wives are more emotional and we're, we're insensitive to them as a result. But if our wives were less emotional, then they would end up being more like men, which is definitely not something that we as men want from our wives. That would be bad. Now here's what's unfortunate. Even though it's a good thing that our wives are different emotionally, sometimes we make them feel bad about it when we see them upset and we get upset with them as a result. Part of dwelling with our wives in an understanding way means considering why they're upset, showing them compassion, generally trying to be strong for them versus getting anger with them. Now, let me ask you a question. If you look at Jacob's words, are they true? I'm not asking, are they nice? And I'm not asking if he said them kindly. I'm asking, are they true? What do you think? They are. His words are true. 
Everything Jacob said is true. He, is not in, he was not in control of whether his wife could have children. But he was still wrong because of the way that he responded. And I think that's an important thing that I've had to learn as a pastor. Can we be right and still be wrong? Absolutely. We can be right in what we think or believe, but we can be wrong because of the way that we say it or go about it. And that's, he's a good example of that. He was right, but he was wrong for being so cruel or insensitive to his wife at this moment. Next, turn to 1 Samuel 1. I'll explain this situation. There's a man named Elkanah, and he has two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. Between these two wives, one of them, Peninnah, could have children, but Hannah could not. So you're kind of noticing a pattern here. It's similar to the situation with Rachel and Leah. But there's something about Hannah's situation that makes it even worse. And, and can I just say something real quick? I'll, I'll make this brief. It's a theme in the Old Testament for women to be unable to have children. It is a theme in the Old Testament for a woman's womb to be closed. When it says a woman's womb is closed or she's barren, it doesn't mean she hasn't had children. It means she can't have children. And frequently, the woman who was barren or whose womb was closed ends up being opened by prayer, often the prayer of a husband. But when I come to marriage conferences, if I can ever pray with a couple or pray for a couple to be able to have children, I'm always very blessed. I don't get that request very often, and maybe it's because I don't say this frequently enough at marriage conferences as I don't have it on my notes. Maybe I should add it to my notes because it's really a blessing to me to be able to pray. There was one time when I, was, I spoke at this conference, and I, or actually, I'll, let, me back, let me say it like this. I'm at church this one day, and have you ever seen someone recognize you and you can't recognize them and it bothers you and you know they know who you are and you don't know who they are? And there's this gentleman, he comes to church this one morning with his wife and he's pushing, pushing the stroller and he's got this smile on his face and I can tell he knows me and I couldn't for the life of me remember him. And so he comes up to me and he says, I'm, I'm really excited to, to be here to see you and we, we've come some distance this morning to um, share something with you. And I said, you need to forgive me. I feel terrible. I can't remember who, who you are. And he said, well, we were at a conference that you spoke at and we came to your booth and we told you that we hadn't been able to have any children and so we had asked you to pray for us. And you did. And I said, okay. And then he reaches into the stroller and he says, hey, I want to show you the baby that we ended up getting pregnant with soon after you had prayed for us and wanted you to be able to, to meet that child. And it was just a really um, touching moment that I'll never forget. And so... So, hey, if I ever pray for you and you have a child, make sure you at least send me a photo of that child in the future at some point, right? <laughs> and it was just incredible. They came all that way to introduce me to this, to this child. And so it's always a privilege. If I can ever pray for anyone to be able to have children, that would, that would be a blessing for me. And so right here we see that uh, Hannah, the situation between Hannah and Peninnah, but there is something that's making Hannah's situation even worse than Rachel's situation, and it's Peninnah's cruelty toward her. So Elkanah's other wife, other wife, Peninnah, is being cruel toward Hannah. So it's bad enough when you can't have children, but it's another thing when your husband's other wife is having children and then is cruel to you in response. So look at verse 6. And her, Hannah, Hannah's rival, Peninnah, provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she, Peninnah, provoked her, provoked Hannah. So you're told the same thing twice. You can see how bad it was. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. And if you've never heard this before, anytime you see repetition in God's word, God doesn't use highlighting. He doesn't use asterisks. He doesn't use underlining. What does he use to make sure we don't miss something? Or what does he use to emphasize something? 
Repetition. So whenever you're seeing something more than once in Scripture, that's God's way of saying, make sure you don't miss this. And in these two verses, you're told twice that Peninnah was provoking Hannah, which tells you just how bad it was. Now, there's a difference between Jacob and Elkanah as we contrast these husbands, a difference and a similarity. The difference is that Jacob was cruel or anger with Rachel. He responded in anger. But Elkanah is actually going to respond with encouragement. He's going to try to cheer up his wife. That's the difference between them. Jacob responds in anger. Elkanah responds by trying to cheer her up. The similarity is that both husbands ended up mistreating their wives. Look at verse 8. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? I can't believe he said this. This is an incredibly insensitive husband. Why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? (laughs) And this brings us to lesson three, part two. Husbands mistreat their wives by part two, responding in pride by responding in pride. So brothers, when our wives are upset, we don't want to act like Elkanah. In one sentence, or one short response, he made three common mistakes that we can learn from. First, he asked insensitive questions that left only two possibilities. One possibility, like when he says, why are you upset? Why do you not eat? That was insensitive because it means he either didn't know why his wife was weeping He didn't know why she wasn't eating and why she was grieving, which makes him look like a completely oblivious husband. But I don't think that's the case. I think he did know why his wife was grieved and wasn't eating because she wasn't able to have children, which instead gives the impression that she should not be upset, which makes him look not like an oblivious husband, but an incredibly insensitive husband because he's communicating to her that her hurt, it's not genuine. This should not be bothering her. And second, he made the king of all prideful statements. He said, isn't being married to me better than all of the children that you could have? So first he rebukes her for crying, and then he tries to encourage her by basically saying what? Well, why are you upset when you get to be married to me? Right? That's what he said. What could possibly bother you in life when you get to be married to someone as awesome as I am? So it looks pretty ridiculous, but I do think that there are ways we can be like this as husbands. We say things like, well, look how hard I work for you. Look at all I do for you. Think about all I've given you. How could you be upset? Because even if a husband, and I'm not minimizing husbands providing for their families, and I'm not minimizing wives appreciating husbands providing for their families, but even if a husband provides incredibly well for his wife, there can still be things in her life that are hurtful and hard, which he should acknowledge and be sensitive toward. So how should a husband respond to his wife's hurt? Well, the third mistake Elkanah made was he tried to cheer up Hannah. There's an important verse here regarding when people are suffering that doesn't has a lot of application for pastors, but I think it has a lot of application for Christians in general. Listen to this, Proverbs 25, verse 20. Like one who takes away a garment in cold weather, you're taking away a jacket from someone when it's cold, or pouring vinegar on soda. Nobody wants vinegar poured on their soda, right? Is like one who sings songs to a heavy heart. Or in other words, someone who takes a jacket away from someone when it's cold or pours vinegar on their soda is like someone who tries to cheer up someone when that person is upset. 
When people are hurt, don't offer them cliches and platitudes and simply, instead, simply be with them. It's known as the ministry of presence. And it's, you know, sometimes in the church, someone will be really hurting. Maybe we had a, a one couple, their child drowned. And the child, I think, was like 10 or 11. And there were people that were deeply burdened for this couple. And we wanted to we encouraged our church to reach out to them, but some people would come to me privately and they'd say, you know, I want to go be with them and I want to help them, but I just don't know what to say. And I would say, if you don't know what to say, you're probably going to do a great job because you're going to go there and you're just going to be with them. There's a wonderful saying, if you can't improve on silence, don't. If you can't improve on silence, don't. You don't have to fill the silence. Just be with someone, be quiet. Maybe go with a psalm, like I call it like a back, a hip pocket psalm, where you're ready if they do. I generally go to be with people most of the time, believe it or not, even as a pastor, they don't ask me to share anything. They don't ask me to answer anything for them. But I do go prepared with some scripture if they do want me to read some. And I would say just go with a psalm that's encouraging that you can share if they do invite you to say something. But most of the time, people don't want anything more than for someone to simply be with them. Of all the times I've been with grieving people, I can only think of one instance that I felt burdened to try to say something um, profound. Now, when did Job's friends get it right? You guys who were part of this church have been going through Job Sunday mornings, is my understanding. When, when did Job's friends get it right? They, see, they, they go bad. They go down in history as like the classic example of bad friends. You know, we tell people, hey, you're like Job's friends. Well, Job's friends were actually really good friends at first. Because if you think in the ancient world where there's no texting, there's no emailing or phone calls, they had to coordinate all three of them together to travel some distance and then just sit with him for, I think, seven days on end without anyone saying anything. So when did Job's friends have it right? When they were sitting with him and nobody was saying anything. When did his friends get it wrong? When they opened their mouths and they started talking, right? So most of the time, if you just go with someone you're not, and you're just with them, they're going to appreciate your time with them. Job 2.13, they sat down on the ground seven days, seven nights. Nobody spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was great. Romans 12.15, it says, weep with those who weep. Just, and so there's great application for marriage, to bring this back to marriage. When our wives are hurting, typically they might not want much more than... Katie has told, this is how dense I am as a husband. I'm not kidding. This is how oblivious I can be. I've had to have Katie tell me exactly what to say. And she has said, I just want you to say, this sounds hard. This must be difficult. Don't try to fix this for me. Don't try to solve this for me. And that's tough for husbands, because what are we typically? Fixers. We want to fix things. We want to solve things. And so Katie said, don't try to fix anything. Don't try to solve. Has anyone ever seen this video? And I'll, I'll wrap up pretty quick. I mean, I'm supposed to wrap up at 20 after. So I think I have a moment just to share this. There's this wonderful, uh, wonderful video where there's this woman and it shows the back of her head and she's talking to her husband. And she's talking about how she has all these headaches and how everything's been really difficult for her. And she doesn't know why her head hurts so much. And her husband has this look of shock on his face as he's, and as he's staring at her. And then the camera kind of pans around where you get to see the front of her face. And it, it sounds gra graphic, but it's really not. She has this nail sticking out of the front of her head. Has anyone seen this before? And so this nail is sticking out of the front of her head, and she's saying things like, my head, it's hurting so bad. I'm pulling my sweaters over, and my sweaters keep getting torn, and I don't know what's going on. And, the, and her husband starts to say, hey, well, there's actually this nail. And then, and then she goes, stop. Why are you always trying to fix everything? Why are you always... And, and she says, and I just don't know why it hurts right in this area of my face. And then her husband says, well, there's actually, there's this nail. And she goes, stop, why can't you just listen to me? And so then finally the husband goes, you know what? 
and he's, he's kind of confused, and he kind of reached, he, he kind of goes, well, I'm sorry about what you're going through. And then she reaches out and takes his hand and goes, thank you so much. You know, that's all I wanted from you. <laughs> so it's, it's pretty good in terms of, in terms of revealing what, husband, what wives typically want in marriage and how badly that, that Elkanah and uh, Jacob ended up doing this. So Romans 12, 15, weep with those who weep. That couldn't even include our wives when they're hurting just to be with them. So I'll conclude this message by asking the husbands, and I ask myself these questions too. Would our wives say that we're interested in them, we understand them, we honor them, we value them? Would our wives say that we treat them as the weaker vessel? Would our wives say that we're spiritual men who pray with our families and encourage them to trust us and respect us? Would our wives say that we respond to them in anger because we lack patience? Or would they ever say that we respond to them in pride by telling them all the wonderful things that we have have done for them. It does not encourage wives when they're hurting to be reminded of all the things that their husbands had done for them. And I'll close by reminding all of us, not just husbands, how Christ treated his, or not just wives, but husbands as well, how Christ treated his bride, the church. J.R. Miller said, how did Christ show his love for his church? In other words, how did Christ treat his bride? Think of his gentleness to his friends, his patience with them in all of their faultiness, his thoughtfulness, his unwearying kindness, Never did a harsh word fall from his lips upon their ears, nor did he do anything to give them pain. It was not easy for him at all times to maintain such constancy and such composure and quietness of love toward them, for they were very faulty. If you're familiar with, someone said one time, we almost have to remember that these are the apostles and not the apostles, right? Because of some of their weaknesses and struggles, but Christ was always so patient with them despite their faultiness and how many times they tried him a thousand ways, but his affection never wearied nor failed for an instant. Husbands are to love their wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for it. He loved even to the utmost cost of sacrifice, self-sacrifice. Father, I do thank you for Christ's example for us as husbands, the way that he has treated the church. I pray that as husbands, all of us, myself included, would strive to treat our wives the way that we have seen Christ treat his disciples and believers. I thank you for his care and love for us. I do pray that it would be the power of the gospel working in our hearts that allows us to be the husband's that you desire us to be. I thank you for this time this morning, Lord, as we come to just one one more message. Help us to take all these truths with us. And as we talked about at the beginning of this message, not just to be hearers of the word, but doers also. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.